Radio Drone. Hey, Brad, can you believe it took us 66 episodes to get our new regular co-host in here? <laughs> 66 entire episodes, and that's counting back from the very beginning. Well, then we'd be like at 69 or 70, depending on how you wanted to count that, like we argued about last week. Oh, right, 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 yeah. Obviously, Brad is with me. I am Josh Hadley, and our new regular co-host is... The one and only Flaming Brian. Who you you also might know as Brian Lewis, right? (laughs) I I answer to that from time to time. I I like the the one guy out there who would be confused when you said Flaming Brian, but once you specified Brian Lewis... Oh, oh, that flaming Brian. Oh, okay, I gotcha. It's flaming (laughs) as in cooking, not flaming as in the other thing. No, it's flaming as in the other thing. Well, all right, I was just—I was trying to be nice. (laughs) So, with Brian joining the show, I'm going to put him on the spot. Hey, Brian, do you know who our sponsor is? Uh, I do believe it's the fine folks over at Adam and Eve, if I'm not mistaken. And you are not mistaken. And if you go to AdamandEve.com and use the promo code Drome, you get fifty percent off of a single item. You get free shipping, you get three free DVDs, and you get a free mystery gift. All you have to do is go to adamandeve.com and use the promo code DROME. Isn't that awesome? I'm kind of just wanting to do that right now. I'll I'll be back, guys. I'll I'll be back. (laughs) Well, that was a great guest shot for Brian Lewis. That's nothing. I gave, a, I gave an interview earlier where I got to talk about Shannon Weary for about 10 minutes. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> now, did, did that come up naturally, or was that something you wanted to do? Everything about Shannon Weary is natural. Okay. And everything about Shannon Weary is something I want to do. That's weird. <laughs> Isn't that funny how that works out sometimes? <laughs> I want to ask, have both of you guys seen the Prometheus trailer? Yeah, I saw them both. Uh, I saw the uh, the U.S. one first because I was at some movie where they showed it, and then uh, just last night we watched the international trailer. What about you, Brian? Uh, yeah, I, I, actually, I, I kind of came across it the uh, the opposite way. I saw the uh, international one before I actually uh, saw the the new U.S. one, so I had a little bit I don't know, a little bit different experience watching them. Well, the what I want to ask, and this isn't even like a topic, but do you notice the difference in how these the same movie is being sold to an American as it's being sold to a Brit? The American version is full of explosions and people screaming like, Get to the airlock! The British version is all about it's a mystery and we have actual characters. Isn't that kind of funny? Uh, yeah, I'll see it either way. Oh, I'm going <laughs> to see it either way, but I'm just it's a little insulting that they have to, to use the mm-hmm. Hey, look, that blowed up real good! kind of way uh-huh. to sell it to us dumb merkins. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll give it this. It really only gets kind of explosion-heavy in the second half of the U.S. trailer. It doesn't do it throughout the whole thing. Um, but, but yeah, one is more fast-paced. One one has a little bit more to do with the plot. But uh, the, the U.S. version shows some plot elements of it, too. It just ends with about a minute's worth of explosions. It does, but that's the, what kind of insulted me. You, you know, you see this all the time, a lot more in the 80s than now. The R-rated version sold to Americans, and then you'd see the international version that was sold in Europe, and it's a much slower-paced, much more character-driven film in Europe because us yeah. dumb Merkins, we don't want character stories. We just want people getting shot in the face. <laughs> it has to be in the face. <laughs> well, yeah, because the, uh, uh, the, the international version, like, it, it kind of... For for me, it had a lot more of the feel of like the original Alien movie. Like it did. 
there was just it, it was there was a almost like a sense of foreboding that they even set up just in a trailer whereas yeah like you say the US version it just it's like wow that's a really hardcore action movie i guess i don't know i, I that's <laughs> the only thing i can think of well and i did, what, I did notice... what i will say about the what i will say about the US version of that trailer is that in the in the in the last half of that trailer where it gets very explosion heavy it did it well like it looked good. It looked really good. I didn't say it didn't look good. I just like, said they did it. They did it really well. So I wasn't like mad or anything like that. I, I didn't really give it a second thought, honestly. But uh, so so it still made it look like an interesting enough movie. Did you guys notice the one big thing that was missing from the U.S. trailer that was in the U.K. trailer? Oh, uh, I, I definitely noticed a, a distinct lack of the uh, the space jockey. Also, on the same token. The UK trailer also has a one-second clip of a xenomorph, an actual alien, coming out of a wall like they did in Aliens. It also has a one-second clip of the uh, NES game Xenophobe. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you hang- can't tell, but it's in there. All right, because H- all of a sudden the Brad, second half of the Brian, screen turns into the all of a sudden the second half of the screen turns into the Sunsoft logo. <laughs> but no, I, I'm just saying. I like, wondered about that <laughs> because you guys remember how Ridley Scott kept saying this is not a prequel, it's not a prequel, blah blah blah, and then yeah. the, then the Brits get the shot of the alien to go, yeah, look, keep saying that, Ridley, keep saying it's not a prequel. Uh huh. Well, like the uh, the viral marketing they're doing for it has like. Uh, it, it's just not like the it's not the standard Whalen Utani logo, but it definitely is like the Whalen Corporation logo on stuff. I'm like, oh, f-ing really? Okay, yeah, these have nothing to do with each other. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. <laughs> One's got Sigourney Weaver, the other has Numi Rapace. They're both different. <laughs> oh yeah, that that was the problem. <laughs> the, the one the one thing that bothered me the most, though, and maybe this will be explained by the fact that the, in the first film. They they were, you know, basically space truckers, but then it still doesn't explain how the Marines wouldn't have this. Did you notice that the technology they display earlier in the timeline is far more advanced than even the Colonial Marines would have 56 years after the first film? <laughs> Why do they have more advanced technology in the past? Because that's an obvious answer, because in that time period, there were significant amounts more of CGI. <laughs> that's got to be the answer. There's no that, way they can explain it in the, the plot. That, that is clearly the answer. It's like that's why the Star Wars prequels look prettier. It's because somewhere in those missing years, they got rid of all their green screens. <laughs> it makes perfect sense, honestly. Well, a, a listener actually sent a pair of dog tags on them to me for the 42nd Street Forever contest that actually yeah. has printed on it. I hate it because it was made after 1995. <laughs> somebody somebody made that and yes. sent it to you? Yes. Oh, the only thing I ever get sent to me is a box of manure. Well, no, he he did. There's also something for you, but it's it's a sealed package, so I don't know what your dog tags say, but I'm supposed to mail them to you now. Cool. So you you did get dog tags. I just don't know what they say on them because I don't open other people's mail. I'm not the US government. <laughs> well, I got to ask you, what what made you go back to black and white? So I thought you said you weren't going to do a whole lot of black and white movies for this as the snob. Um, sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't. It all depends on the movie, you know. I really wanted to to do a video on the movie Child Bride. I wanted to do uh, Hitler Dead or Alive, and in this honestly, in this particular case, when I picked uh, the Terror of Tiny Town, it's because I, and this is going to sound like I'm making a stupid joke, but I'm not. I, I needed a movie that was short. 
there's no other Boo. way. It's got a built-in pun right there, man. Come on. There's yeah. There was no other way for me to say that. But I did, given given how busy we've been with the movie and everything, and I wanted to get a snob, I wanted to get a snob video up. I needed to pick a movie that was short. And that movie, that movie, I I kind of had written down for a while to eventually do on the show, and it's only sixty minutes long. So. So that just that it, it just kind of worked for me to do that. Well, for a topic tonight, I wanted to talk to you guys about unconventional direction in movies. Now, there mm-hmm. is a caveat here. When I'm talking unconventional direction, it has to be intentionally unconventional. Bad okay. direction, just a director that does not know what he's doing, does not count. Uh-huh. It has to have been a conscious choice that the director said, I'm going to direct this movie very, very strange. My example would be, we talked about it a few weeks ago, To Live and Die in L.A. Oh, okay. Right, right, right. William Friedkin directed that movie almost like he didn't know what he was doing. Because you'll notice there's almost no insert shots of, you know, people picking up papers or anything. It's almost Uh almost all done in the master shot. In almost the entire movie, not counting the car chase, there's hardly any cutaways. It's usually done in one shot. And then... He shoots the wrong person in dialogue conversations. You know how mm-hmm. normally the camera would be on the person talking? He does the exact opposite. The person talking's head is to the, the back of their head is to the camera, and you're only seeing the reaction. Mm-hmm. That is a very unconventional way to direct ostensibly an action movie. Well, and he did it incredibly well, too, because when I, when I first saw that movie, To Live and Die in L.A., I wasn't sitting there like, well, this looks dumb, or this looks odd, or this looks, I can't get into how this is shot, or something like that. Like, no, not all. Honestly, when I saw it, that's not even anything that I really picked up it picked up while watching it because I was so absorbed into that story, into that world, that it just worked for me. Oh, no, I absolutely agree with that, but mm-hmm. on, a, on subsequent viewings, I started to notice that this is not shot like a normal studio film is. So what, what would be your guys' picks for a movie that is just really intentionally, unconventionally shot? I can think off the top of my head stuff like, uh, you know, like the real-time movies, you know, stuff that, like, the gimmick is is that it's supposed to be all in one shot. I mean, it's not, but it's edited to look that way. Um, so, you know, you got stuff like that Bruce Campbell movie, Running Time. You kind of start looking for where the cuts might be, you know? So that, that like, you would think that that would be kind of distracting, but it's really not. It kind of adds to the charm of the movie. <laughs> a, a movie that I loathed the first time I saw it, and subsequently uh, I, I've really come to enjoy watching it, uh, would be uh, uh, David Lynch's Inland Empire. I mean, from start to finish, he just made that as as odd as possible. Like every bizarre way he could have done anything from not just even the directing, but whatever you'd consider the writing of that to anything else. (laughs) It's just like he was just making it up as he went. Well, I mean, he was, but I mean, just everything about it was just so bizarre, you know, filming scenes that had nothing to do with each other and then trying to piece them together and post to make a story and, you know, just the whole way he went about it. It sounds like that Scott Shaw crap that Obscurus Lupa just exposed, his The Art of Zen filmmaking. Did you guys see that? Uh-huh. I haven't gotten a chance to watch him yet. Basically, Scott Shaw's whole career has been what he calls Zen filmmaking. You go yeah. in with no script, no no storyboards. You go in with a general plot, and then you just make everything up right then and there. The whole movie is the when the inspiration hit us, then we shot the scene. 
And it, I did that in high school. That includes fight <laughs> scenes, which do improvised fight scenes. I'm sorry, they do not look good. <laughs> it's also dangerous as hell, too. <laughs> right? I thought the same thing when I saw two guys fighting each, fighting each other outside the convenience store. I sat there and said, well, this is poorly choreographed. If this were a Tarantino <laughs> film, we'd see so much more. Right? Ugh. Well, <laughs> but, and that's one of those things is like with a... Uh, with a fight in a movie, they're always really great because they are very carefully choreographed and planned out and all that stuff. If you've actually seen just two guys like in a bar just start throwing fists, mm-hmm. it looks terrible. It's like, well, this is just weird. Oh, now they're just hugging. Whatever. I don't care. It doesn't look like the Warriors. <laughs> sword no. fights or sword fights or lightsaber duels or things like that are even worse because it's almost like filmmakers don't understand the whole point of a sword fight is to stab the other guy. Whereas you see all these movies in the 70s and 80s where all they do is they try and clank their swords together. Yeah. You realize the reason they did that was because one guy was trying to disembowel the other guy and he was using his sword to block it. Not Uh intentionally just clanking swords. (laughs) Just clanking swords. (laughs) No way, dude. That's what we used to do as kids and I've uh, kept doing that as an adult. It's... You know, it's clearly the right way. <laughs> well, the, the, I don't want to. I don't want to get. I don't want to hurt the other person. Well, in the movie, you're supposed to make it look like you're trying to disembowel them. Nope, nope. It's got to be like it was when I was five. <laughs> that explains a lot. <laughs> but, but I mean, what I mean is, when you have a director that decides, I mean, like William Friedkin for To Live and Die in L.A., he's never really used that style again on, on any other film. So you kind of have to wonder, did he think it didn't work? Did the studio heads come down on him and go, no, you're not doing this again? Yeah. Or Because it worked beautifully in the movie. Mm-hmm. You have to wonder why he didn't use that style again. Or I don't know. Maybe he just wanted it to be to go hand in hand with that movie. You know, I mean, it, 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 it's sort of like, uh, OK, I mean, you know, what? what's an example here of uh, you, you could probably think of an example of another director who used a particular style for one specific movie, but maybe didn't use it again in another one or something after that. Maybe he just wanted that movie to have that particular look to it. Well, one thing I can't stand is when you get a director that does something a little out of the norm. And I'm thinking like Paul Thomas Anderson on Boogie Nights and Hard Eight. Mm-hmm where he mm-hmm. had those long, sometimes five-minute-long uncut tracking shots going yeah. through a house or something like that. You didn't see that all that often prior to the Hard Eight, and then all of a sudden, every director, I want as long of a tracking shot as possible, which even goes back to Orson Welles on Touch of Evil. Yeah, it goes but, back to Orson Welles on Touch of Evil, and it goes back even you know a little, bit, a little bit before Boogie Nights. You know, I think a lot of, honestly, when I when I hear people talk about how they've used that in in modern day movies um you know they they they're pretty heavily influenced off of something like that tracking shot from goodfellas and yeah uh uh, when orson wells did it well the tracking shot from goodfellas uh scorsese admits was influenced by touch of evil so i'm sure i'm sure it was but i'm saying that a lot of modern day filmmakers also say that they've gotten that that they they were inspired by goodfellas but would you say there's inspired or jumping on a trend? Because, again, I'm not trying to make this an Orson Welles thing, but have you ever seen the movie F for Fake, the documentary he made in the 70s? Um, I've heard of it just by name. That was the first film that 
used what what we now call MTV style editing, the fast mm-hmm. cuts to all the different angles and whatnot. And it was considered so groundbreaking, everyone hated it. They said this movie was edited by by a blind man. Yeah. And now everybody uses that style. Does anyone say, hey, Orson Welles kind of is the one that pioneered this? No, they don't. They just said, this is cool. I'm going to do it. Well, yeah. I mean, there is a difference in the sets because, like, there is a difference between being very inspired off of something and making it work in context to what you're doing and having and giving it its own feel and giving it its own vibe and just doing it for really no reason other than you saw it in something else. Which is what I would call kind of a crappy filmmaker that does that. Mm-hmm. For one, I can't stand rapid cutting. I'm one of those people that I really respected Friedkin for to live and die in L.A. for the lack of insert shots. You know, mm-hmm. if somebody goes to pick up a gun in a traditional movie, they would have the insert shot of, you know, some DP's hand picking up the gun that matches mm-hmm. Willem Dafoe or whatnot. I respected Friedkin that we didn't need to be shown every single detail of the movie. We could infer. We see him reaching into the table, and then on the next shot he's got a gun that he grabbed a goddamn gun. I don't think, yeah, but I mean, there are some movies where that can work and some movies where it can't. I don't think that it's a big blanket thing where just because it didn't work in this thing doesn't mean it won't work in something else. I've seen movies that do really quick cutting like that where I found it very annoying, but then I've seen something like Crank, which uses a lot of cuts, which I thought it worked really well. But I would say in a movie like Crank, that helps because the whole movie is basically an adrenaline rush. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. In some movies, it does work. It can work. It fits along with the vibe of the movie. And then in others, it might be annoying. 13 Ghosts. Yeah, yeah. 13, there you go. 13 Ghosts. I don't think 13 Ghosts held a single shot without a cut for more than four frames in that entire mm-hmm. movie. I actually yeah. got motion sickness because that camera never stopped cutting. Mm-hmm. You couldn't even see the damn ghosts or the sets. What's the point of cutting a movie like that? Well, here's, here's something in terms of unconventional style. Uh, back when Natural Born Killers came out. The the sort of student filmish style that Oliver Stone went for? For Natural Born Killers, yeah. <laughs> Seen a lot of that in uh, movies at the time. No, I, I will absolutely agree with you. I think yeah, I didn't think even think of that. But yeah, NBK would very much be a, a choice for really NBK, un- really? NBK? <laughs> My DVD has NBK on the cover. The, yeah, well, yeah, well, the poster for Mission Impossible 3 had MI3, but I'm not going to call it that because I sound like a doof. Brian, <laughs> you, do you, you got to call it HP7, P2-3D. Do I sound like a doof calling an NBK instead of Natural Born Killers? I will say that I have never heard anyone address it like that. We'll put it that way. NBK makes it sound like you found your sister's old rap albums from the early 90s. I was just about to say, it sounded like I should be down in Compton all of a sudden. <laughs> Oh, man, you got the new MBK album? Tight! I wouldn't even say Compton. It sounds more like West Hollywood. (laughs) Well, speaking of Natural Born Killers, do either of you guys have the new DVD that just came out about a year ago? The new special edition? I think you were telling me about that, Uh, but no, I don't. I I, I don't have that. It's got everything the old one had on it, as well as everything the Laserdisc had on it, plus Mm -hmm. a new documentary that basically shows how Natural Born Killers was the start of what we would call reality TV and, you know, people being obsessed with celebrities and how it was ahead mm-hmm. of its time and it's kind of come true. <laughs> I really can't dispute parts of that. No, I can't. 
I, as much as you you don't want to think society's dipped that low, it has. Oh, I know society has dipped that low. It kind of has. <laughs> yeah. Just like you know, but that comes to another thing of movies that are not not even underappreciated in their own time are still unappreciated years later, even though they were so far ahead of the curve. And I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out Videodrome. Mm-hmm. That movie, oh, yeah. technology technology being taken out of it. That movie was dead on to how we are just a, as a society addicted to television mm-hmm. and what we see on TV. And that movie was just so far ahead of its time to do that in 1982. And it still doesn't get the respect it deserves because of the arguably somewhat confusing story and the way it's told. I think Videodrome has been very well received over the years since it came out. Anyone I've talked to who sees Videodrome loves it. It is sort of the thing, though, where, like, it has to be someone who's actually seen it. Like, like if you even try mentioning it to someone who hasn't seen it, more likely than not, they a lot of people I've noticed haven't even heard of it. You know, it's just yeah. I mean, but that's I mean that's that's a particular audience where they probably wouldn't have heard of any David Cronenberg that they threw out to them, save for like something like The Fly or History of Violence. History, yeah, or History of Violence. But the way I look at it is something like Videodrome being so far ahead of the curve, not only did it predict everything more or less, I mean, obviously not, you know, Nikki in the TV and, you know, the penis Mm -hmm. hand and the gun that shoots cancer and things like that, but with our dependence, it's actually more right now than it was in the early 80s. And I don't think people will accept that as much. And, Brad, I sent you an email, uh, a link. I don't know if you looked at it. Did you see some of the original test screening cards from when Videodrome was first being screened by Universal prior to release? Uh, I don't know. I don't read your emails. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, no, I don't, actually, I don't think I got that email of yours. I mean, I'm sure it's in there, but it it probably got pushed down with some other stuff. No, but but no, I have a, I didn't see that. Somebody digging through some Universal archive found the original audience response cards from the test screening of Videodrome. How did that go? 100% negative. Not (laughs) one single person liked the movie. One person even insulted Universal and said, I refuse to respect a studio that would release a a piece of crap like this onto the public. 100% negative. Every single card said this movie is garbage. that that, uh, That was the devil inside of its time. Except the Devil Inside actually did suck. I was going to say, do not compare Videodrome <laughs> to Devil Inside. That's you, no way, Brad. No. Devil, you heard about that, that 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 also got like 100% negative. I didn't hear that, but... It did. Oh, well, it, it also deserved it. Videodrome did not. Videodrome, yeah, no, I think, was no, no. just so far ahead of its time, people didn't get it. Yeah. That was you the just... problem. You know, you have these movies, or, or even like Network. Yeah. Network was so far... It's what the news is today. Mm-hmm. It was 30-plus years ahead of its time, and people saw it as a wild satire. And I bet Petty Chayefsky, had he still been alive by the time he saw that movie become reality, he probably would have wept that what he thought was outrageous science fiction is now fact. <laughs> I like the idea of Network coming out and people calling it science fiction. <laughs> it is in a strain. It I, is kind like, of in a weird, like though, that. isn't it? Isn't it kind of science fiction? 
Um, I, I don't know if I would classify network as science fiction, but I do like that comparison. <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. Um, your network comes out and yeah, it's seen as this wicked comedy satire. No way the news is going to get like this. Cut to 30 years later. Coming up next on The Factor, the liberals want to steal your babies. Again, a network would also be a very uh, unconventionally directed movie. Again, long shots. When I showed that to a friend of mine, after about a half hour, he said, this movie's not very exciting, but it's so engrossing because the way he put it was, this is an actor's movie. That movie's moved along by the performances, not by the story. And it's true. You look at that, the performances are so heartfelt. It would have been a shame if they had not gotten an Oscar nod for almost everyone in that picture, but thankfully they did. What would be another unconventionally directed movie that you think, again, leaving out incompetence, so no Ed Woods or Godfrey Hoes? Orgy of the Dead. Because I would say Godfrey Hoes is a very unconventional director, too, but that's in the incompetent category. After all those movies, you figure you would have got it right at some point. <laughs> no, after only half of all those movies. <laughs> I actually think Godfrey Ho is a very competent, uh, very competent at shooting fight choreography. <laughs> Just not dialogue or character or editing or... Say, yeah, I mean, there's some things he doesn't excel at, but, you know, some things he does. Oh, come on. Pierre Kirby looked like he was totally in all those movies. He did. When he was acting opposite Edouan Burzma. <laughs> <laughs> on the spot, I am drawing a blank suddenly on another, and I'm sure there's plenty in my head that I know. Uh, Jason Takes Manhattan. Jason Takes Manhattan. I mean, really? Shooting it in New York? Come on. Canada, you mean? Yeah, you know, New York. <laughs> <laughs> Canada is the New York of Canada. Wait, what? <laughs> Does that make sense? Or, Or, or even unconventional direction in the way of the way they use the mood and the camera. I'm thinking the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers movie. Mm-hmm. The way he, Oh, I loved it. I've got an original poster of that hanging on my wall right now. The paranoia and how the world keeps getting smaller on these characters just keeps ramping up as the movie progresses. And you'll notice even the camera angles keep getting tighter, almost implying to us through the direction that their world is getting smaller and they're running out of room. That was Philip Kaufman did a brilliant job just making the the oppression of that movie come forward. I disagree. No, you don't. (laughs) You're just disagreeing to be a dick. There's a difference. (laughs) You have been wrong on everything you said today. Most unconventional directed movie, Caligula. R-rated or X-rated? Dude, X-rated. There are times where it seriously looks like it's shot by two different people. <laughs> I wonder if that I wonder if that were true. <laughs> well, and then you also have, sometimes with a director's style, you have a very, you can see it in their early work, even ones that they really don't want to admit, such as you can really tell James Cameron directed Piranha 2 The Spawning. I was just going to say that. Yeah, you could. That is totally a James Cameron looking movie it's of, of the time. And I mean, you, you put that next to Terminator and you, without mm-hmm. you take the credits off, you can go. These two movies were definitely directed by the same guy. The style is just so similar. Yet- or like uh, even parts of when Oliver Stone directed The Hand. 
um, there are parts of that movie where you can see early touches of Oliver Stone in that, How or about- even Scorsese with Boxcar Bertha and who's that knocking at my door and and uh, but the early stuff that Kubrick did. Those directors that are stylistically known for certain things, you can see it in their very, very, very early work. As much as I hate Alien Three. That movie looks and feels like a Fincher movie. Oh uh, yeah, it does. You can tell that that's a David Fincher movie for all the problems that that movie has. You, yeah, there's no denying that that's a David Fincher flick. Actually, you got some crap on the comments pages for Dis and Alien Three. I can't believe. I know I saw that. I could not believe there were Alien Three defenders. Do you people have an aversion to good filmmaking or a good film or a coherent story? How do you defend Alien Three? It's garbage. Alien 3, I'll give it to Alien 3 in the sense that, I mean, yeah, it's not very good. It's pretty bad, but I don't think it is the abysmal, wretched, black eye on sci-fi 90s movies that a lot of people say it is. I've seen far, far, far worse than Alien 3. Demolition I don't Man. Think, I, don't, I don't think it's a good movie at all, but... I don't squirm and wretch and want to hurl every time I hear its title. I like it better than Alien Resurrection. I'll give you that. Yeah. Resurrection was garbage. Mm-hmm. Although I admit the first 25 minutes were actually pretty decent. Everything up until the aliens actually get loose on the spaceship, I actually kind of liked all that. Everything up until they killed off Michael Wincott. Exactly, especially because he died in the dumbest way you could. Okay, we know these things are smart. We know they're all over the place. Mm -hmm. You can hear one of them down there. You know, he runs totally past the hallway. Hey, there's another gun. Oh, and it's covered in slime. I should probably just totally examine this and ignore my surroundings. Mm -hmm. What? And he was the boss. Yeah, that, that really pissed me off because I love Michael Wincott. And that really, really made me mad. It's like putting Guy Pierce in something and killing him off 20 minutes in. I'd be so angry. Oh, oh, actually, have you heard that Lockout is a PG-13? Are you serious? The, the teaser trailer for that movie has Guy Pierce dropping the F-bomb. I was going to say, the trailer does not look like a PG-13 no. movie. No, and I, I, well, I guarantee you it is not a PG-13 movie. They're just releasing it that way. Uh, Jillian and I were just going to bitch about that the other week when she filled in for you, and then we t- we started ranting about the Dark Shadows trailer again, and we totally forgot to actually talk about our topic then. Oh, Brian just saw the Dark Shadows trailer. <sighs> yeah. Okay, Brian, go. Yeah, yeah, just, uh, 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 yeah, uh, 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 there are no words. They're just, I, I don't know. I was offended. I was, I was offended I was... at it. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that that's actually, okay, that's a good word to use for it, because, yeah, uh, I hadn't gotten around to watching it at all, I hadn't seen it, uh, I was over here yesterday hanging out with Brad, uh, actually showing mm-hmm. him other trailer there for Prometheus. Weren't you and, bringing uh, him his mail? <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, hey, uh, and, yeah. Travis Crabtree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he, he pulls that one up. And uh, I haven't been to see any movies in the theater, so I hadn't actually seen it before or anything. So I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll watch this. And as soon as that thing started, I'm like, this is not going anywhere good. <laughs> and um, in, in that regard, it did not disappoint. It went everywhere terrible they could have possibly gone. It's like I, I was a huge fan of the original. Like I remember like when I was growing up, uh, I would watch uh, 
like during the summers, like I would wake up and just like turn on the sci-fi channel and they would have, you know, like a lot of old standards, like lost in space and, you know, things like that. And then at some point, like dark shadows would come on and I would just keep watching like all these old throwback shows. And I, I absolutely adored the series. And then to see this trailer where they just decided to, I don't know, like, like they were making a recipe and looked at the wrong page and somehow this thing has the same level of humor to it as like that that damn uh, Three Stooges movie they just uh, finished up with. I mean, that's that's the closest thing I could compare this to. Is if it looks like if Tim Burton had the script for that Three Stooges movie, it's like that level of humor. I'm like this this isn't funny. Who who is the audience for this movie? Not Dark Shadows fans. Brad and I talked about this last week. Yeah. Tarantino's actually quoted as saying he knows this is going to piss off all fans of the original, so he specifically made this movie to piss off the fans of Dark Shadows. Oh, you mean Tim Burton? Yeah, or what did I say? Tarantino. <laughs> did I? I thought you, what I thought you were about <laughs> to say, which would have been awesome, I thought you were about to say, Tarantino says he knows this movie's going to suck. Oh, no. Oh. I don't that know would be that... funny if Tarantino <laughs> came out and said that. Yeah, this movie looks like shit. <laughs> okay, that might have been Freudian on my part. You know how I, an anti-Tarantino of a fan I am. But that is, a, I and, and yet you've liked like two or three of his movies. I've liked Reservoir Dogs and Jackie Brown. That's it. And Jack and Jackie Brown. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't be that anti of a Tarantino person. I think unless Jackie, you just, unless you just don't like him as a person. Jackie Brown, I think, is a phenomenal film. It's not only one of his best films; it's one of the best films of the '90s. I think. I agree with both of those things. Uh, Jackie Brown is honestly my fa- probably my favorite Tarantino flick. But mm-hmm. but the thing with Dark Shadows is, it's one of those why it's almost like the whole Michael Bay Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles thing. The, the turtles are aliens. Yeah, which would which would bring into question. Okay, so they're not mutants, so that part of the title's wrong. Ninjutsu is a specific Asian art, so they couldn't have that, so that would be wrong. And they wouldn't actually be turtles, so this would be teenage alien ninja style turtle almost kind of creatures. But yet, if that were an asylum movie, it'd be awesome. $150 million Michael Bay movie? No. <laughs> you, you know what my thing is? Is when I saw that, I was like, well, it's gonna suck anyway. So this doesn't... Honest, honestly, when I heard that he was turning him into aliens, I was just sort of like, you know, this wasn't gonna be good regardless. No one was gonna like this thing. So I honestly can't get more upset than I previously was when I heard Michael Bay was doing it. Like it doesn't, it doesn't take away, it doesn't take away how how much I would not want to see that movie. Like I get it, I get, I get the anger behind it. I really, really do because you're taking something that uh, you, th- that's pretty well established and, and kind beloved, of screw- and, and beloved. Yeah, that's pretty well established that people love, and you are screwing with it. Yeah, definitely. But at the same time, this is Michael Bay doing it. It's still going to be bad. Oh, I don't know. You and I both agree the island was way better than it had any right to be. The island was way better than it had any right to be. But that that was back. That was at least back when he tried. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, because I yeah, he tried with that. And I do love The Rock, but we're talking early enough in his career, not in this 
Transformers yeah. age and crap like that. Yeah, b- back when he was still trying to carry the weight from uh, from Don Simpson himself, and yeah, he I mean he's completely given up on everything. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and one last thing about the Dark Shadows trailer. Literally, right before we started recording this, the f- last thing I did before I came down here, I showed my son the Dark Shadows trailer, and again, just like Brian. He watched them on the Sci-Fi Channel in the '90s, and he yeah. loves the 1991 series. He just sat there with his jaw on the floor the whole time, going, "This can't be real." This you know, can't and that's be. the thing that I can give it. There's one thing. If there's one thing I can give that is when I saw the trailer, I'm like, "This is." I'm like, "This is going to be really bad." But I was also like, "Honestly, this might be such a train wreck. This might be so bad." that it might be kind of amusing because it's that bad. I'm hoping this is what finally stops Burton's career. <laughs> I hope this is actually such a disaster that no one will hire Burton again after this. Well, yeah. that, that's kind of how I, I described this to uh, uh, to my girlfriend the other night, was like, because she hasn't seen it either. And I'm like, you know how bad Alice in Wonderland got and you know capped it all off with that whole futterwhacking thing like that is like that's where this one starts and it just goes from there it seems i don't think it looks as bad as alice in wonderland i don't think it looks as annoying as that because this one at least looks like it might be so bad that i probably won't be bored um and you know at least it might have some sweet 70s tunes in it you know there is that it might have a funky enough soundtrack so there's that so I don't think it looks as bad because I hated, 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 hated his Alice in Wonderland. I just want to see. I want to see somebody leak the video that somebody was taking on their cell phone when they all got high on LSD laced joints and then had like a bottle of Thunderbird with them when they came up with the idea. Let's do this like this. Yeah, let's do this. Let's do this. As a, let's. It's basic. It basically is Blackula, but with a white guy. <laughs> it's Blackula meets Austin Powers. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's what this thing is. Yeah. That actually brings us back to the unconventional direction. Go back and look at, at Beetlejuice. Back when Tim Burton actually had some good ideas, that was a very unconventionally directed movie. Yeah, yeah. Or, or Vincent, the original short. Yeah. I absolutely loved that short film. That was amazing. Yeah, there's Tim Burton movies I like. Mm-mm. None past the 90s. I like well, Sweeney no. Todd. No, okay, um, no, I'll give you Ed Wood, but it was Ed Wood, kind yeah. of a true story, so he mm. really probably didn't have a whole lot of quote-unquote creative input in just kind of telling a... He relatively told it realistically. I like it whenever a director you don't like does something that you do like. You come up with several excuses as to why it had nothing to do with that director. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> okay, I, I, I give you that in most cases, but with Ed Wood, if you know anything about the real history of Plan 9 and that, yeah, he left yeah, he left out and changed so much yeah. that I do blame him for not telling the story accurately. Sure, 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 yeah. Don't you sure, sure me, <laughs> goddammit. <laughs> Hey, I said Jackie Man, Brown was, was great. really good. Ow. They must have been secretly directing. Someone else must have been secretly directing it while Burton was out getting donuts. Hey, I said I loved Jackie Brown, and it's one of the I best know. films of the 90s. I, that, know, I, give, Tarant- I give Tarantino I, see, total it, credit for Jackie Brown. And you probably think that Friedkin secretly directed it. <laughs> no, it wasn't that unconventionally directed. <laughs> but Friedkin's another one that stopped trying. 
Uh, did you see, was it Rules of Engagement? I forgot he directed that. that was yeah, that was awful. just awful. Like that was just a big screen. Ma- like I didn't. I don't think I necessarily thought it was awful. It was just a big screen made for TV movie. Right, um, but I mean, it wasn't the same William Friedkin that gave us to live and die in L.A. and The Exorcist no, and Sorcerer and The French Connection. This mm-hmm. was not the same director in the early '90s. He would either uh, mellowed or lost his mind. I wasn't not sure which. Is that what are some of the more recent stuff? Oh. Bug. He directed Bug, right? Yeah. And, uh, um, yeah, Bug the, the, I liked. I liked that. Uh, the, the Hunted or The Hunter. That, that one with, uh, was it Benicio del Toro? Oh, yeah, with him and, uh, uh, Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, I didn't like that either. I, I, it was just sort of, it didn't feel like a Friedkin movie. It just felt like a movie. Yeah. And with the, William Friedkin, they usually feel like a William Friedkin movie. Bug, you should maybe check out Bug. I don't know if you'd like it, but at least it's not, it's not, it's certainly not a conventional movie. I, I enjoyed it, uh, with Michael Shannon and, uh, Ashley Judd. Well, okay, you, you brought up Guy Pierce earlier about yeah. the whole, was it Lockout? Lock in? Something like that? Lock, Lockout. Lockout. And he's also in Prometheus. Guy Pierce is a very underrated actor. Ah, oh, Guy Pierce is awesome. You, first of all, watch L.A. Confidential, another unconventionally directed movie, because mm-hmm. it's weird. It, it was directed almost like it was a 50s movie in the 90s. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, so it was, it was freaking great. Oh, I, I loved L.A. Confidential. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I never knew at that time Guy Pierce was Australian. Dude, me because neither. he's so he, <laughs> he, There's no, I mean, like, even in Aliens, Carrie Henn, little, little, Twinges of her British accent sneak through now and then, and you get lots of that with like uh, Mimi Rogers or n- not Mimi Rogers, um, the one from Goodwill Hunting. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, my, 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 mm. God I, damn it! Yeah, her her name fell out of my f-ing head. God damn it! Same here. Uh, Mini Brian. Driver. Mini Driver. Mini Driver. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Mini Driver. When you hear her talk in an interview, you'd never know it's the same girl you just saw on screen. And so I was surprised when I heard Guy Pierce talking on, I don't know if it was the DVD or the Laserdisc for L.A. Confidential. I'm like, he's Australian? What the hell? Yeah, yeah. It was the same way. Like, I think it might have been like when he was promoting Ravenous or something. It's like, holy crap, just the accent turned on and off. When I worked on the movie Feed the Fish, are any of you guys familiar with Vanessa Branch? Um, you, the, you, 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 the... might, you might know her more as the fabulous lady from the Orbitz Gum commercials. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, okay. Well, she she does some movies. She plays the villain in the movie Feed the Fish. Well, kind of a villain in the movie Feed the Fish. And so we're in the basement of a hospital between takes, and I'm just talking to her, and her next gig was to do Dante's Inferno game. Yeah. Th- that was her next gig. And she speaks in real life with a thick, thick British accent. And then she could turn on the New York and then Wisconsin and then Boston. And it was just creepy hearing her say one sentence with every word in a different accent, how she could just like that. Mm. It was just creepy to hear her do that. I remember, too, like uh, being a kid and hearing Bob Hoskins voice for the first time, his actual accent for the first time after <laughs> Roger Rabbit. Like, whoa, 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 really? Because <laughs> he had the British accent in the wall, didn't he? Hey, he, uh, yeah, but I saw the Roger Rabbit before I saw The Wall. Uh, yeah, like, same with, like, Long Good Friday. I saw Roger Rabbit before I saw that. Well, when it comes to accents, the one that doesn't even try is Sean Connery. 
<laughs> Have you ever seen the movie? What are you talking about? He does a perfect Scottish accent in all of his movies. Even when he's playing a Russian submarine captain, and <laughs> in the movie The Arab Conspiracy, he's playing yeah. the Sheik's son with his normal Scottish accent. And I'm going, yeah, I don't think the Sheik's son would speak like he's from Scotland. But he he at least, I mean, this is kind of a testament to him as an actor, though, because I still by him in these roles like even okay he's using a scottish accent and he's playing an irish cop in the untouchables like okay he, he he's not exactly using the correct accent but i still totally buy him in that role wasn't he in a <laughs> wasn't he an italian mobster or something in that that movie with dustin hoffman and matthew broderick uh family business oh yeah i, yeah, think, yeah, I think there were yeah, supposed to be italians that. in that and he's got the scottish accent what about Christopher Lambert as uh, the Sicilian? I actually have that on Laserdisc. I've never seen it. Is, the, is that a good movie? I am Salvatore Romano. <laughs> well, see, oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, like, no, it's not that great of a movie, really. But, I mean, like, it's worth it to see Lambert play, a, play an Italian guy, play, well, an, play a, a Sicilian. Well, he got the, uh, you know, he got the accent lessons there from Connor, you know, from f***ing Highlander, you know? Yeah. Which is the one thing, <laughs> okay, a lot of people blame, they say he has one of the worst accents, European accents, in Highlander, and they explain it in the commentary track very, in a way that I totally buy, that the whole point of him in the present of 1986 mm -hmm. was that he'd been around the world and so many countries for so long, all these different accents kind of meshed into an almost unrecognizable one. <laughs> so, they're just attempting to explain his real accent. I know, but I actually buy <laughs> that explanation a little bit, don't you? I, 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 I kind of well, do, because I, I sort of like, because Christopher Lambert was born in, wasn't he born in, like, New York, but then moved to, like, France at a pretty young age? So he has been, like, two different places, so I did kind of attribute, like, the uniqueness of his voice sort of to that. Well, I, I just figured that part of that, too, was his original, you know, accent from Zeiss kind of really showing through. Hey, yeah, hey, it's, hey, no, it's a Zeiss no, accent. no, you do not get to use the Z word on this show, Brian. Zeiss does not exist on this show. There's only one Z word on this show, and that's Zardoz. I was just about to say the penis is evil, Brad. <laughs> the gun is good. The penis is evil. That's one of those movies I would have liked to have seen the conversation by Sean Connery's agent about how they got him in that movie. Well, now you get to wear a red diaper. Want to be in something awesome. You, now you get to wear a red diaper in most of this. Mm -hmm. and I, I just—that's one of those movies that you have to go. You know what? The behind-the-scenes of this movie is probably better than the movie itself. <laughs> it was the '70s, you know. <laughs> I love that movie. I'm not saying it's a bad movie, but is that the only explanation you're going to give? Just, it was the 70s, that's it? You know, sometimes that works. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes sometimes that is a good enough explanation. <laughs> it was the 70s, good enough. It was the 70s. It's like when you see, like, it's like when you see something like Head, you're like, uh, well, it was, it was the late 60s. And, and that was, and it was Jack Nicholson. Yeah, Nicholson wrote it, so. Hey, you know, some some weird stuff can be explained simplistically enough. It can, doesn't usually, but it can. It's like when you see something really incredibly cynical in the 90s, and you're like, well, it was the 90s. Of course you have a freaking movie like SFW. 
Well, okay. Well, one more before we go out. You, that actually reminded me of another unconventionally directed movie, SLC, SFW. SLC Punk. That movie was really unconventionally directed. Have you seen SLC Punk? Yeah, like when it first came out. What about you, Brian? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I actually I really do enjoy that movie. So are, are you with me or against me that that's a very unconventionally directed flick? Uh, I, I can see that. I mean, it, it's one that, for me, that's definitely one that I, I've seen enough times that I, I can I can acknowledge that. But I just I'm one that I've never actually watched it from a you know, like highly critical you know point of view. Like I'm usually if I'm watching it, it's like oh hey not watching anything else click. So I just, I never really thought that much about it. Well, I know that there is some it's like if, if there's one thing that the ninety and SLC Punk was fine, but uh, if there's one thing that the nineties did kind of show, it's that you can have an unconventionally directed movie, but it that might not mean that it's any good. Like the Doom Generation, the Blair Witch <laughs> which, Project, which is with the Doom. I, I I would not say the Blair Witch Project was an unconventionally directed film. Um, <laughs> I like the Blair Witch Project. I like it just fine. It wasn't the first of that kind. It was, but it was the biggest. It was the first one that a yeah, lot of people yeah. probably it, saw. Yeah, it, it certainly, it certainly was it, to that ex, to that extent. Sure, but I thought I thought the Blair Witch Project was a fine movie. But like, so, but yeah, something like the Doom Generation, which you know did have some unconventional stuff going on in it in terms of how it was made. But it's one of the worst goddamn movies I've ever seen in my life. Well, it's just a, it's a very very long student project. I mean, that's all it is. I mean, it's that that movie is just so I I don't know I don't know the right word like just a self masturbatory fantasy for that director is like I want all of this in a movie and he just put mm-hmm. it in there whether yeah. it made any damn sense or not. Yeah. Oh, also oh, Quentin Tarantino. No, on that note, Tarantino, Tarantino has talent and can write. Well, Greg, it, Ara- Greg Araki can't. That's well, true. And yeah, and, and to be fair, like it, that movie was full of so much like of of what he thought symbolism was. Like you know, like the different colored lighter flames mean something, and uh-huh. all the characters having color last names. Like just so many odd things. Like you're just gonna cram. All of this into one movie, aren't you? God damn it, mid nineties! I hate you so goddamn much. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna end the show on that note. Where can we find Brad Jones? Uh, thecinemasnob.com. Where can we find Brian Lewis or Flaming Brian, as it is? Uh, generally, thecinemasnob.com. That's where I like to hang out. Good people. And I, I should clarify: uh, not not everything in the mid nineties was bad. No, but it was it was not a good time for film. It was, let's put it it was that a way. very it was a very cynical time in our movie movies history. Which is why you'd think I'd like it. So I'm a very cynical critic. <laughs> right? You should love the '90s. <laughs> so Brian will hopefully be back next week. <laughs> okay, I, I, yeah, I will continue to try to not royally screw up. Yeah, barring any uh, unforeseen uh, technical difficulties, yeah, I should be back. And you get to do the Adam and Eve promo next week. So remember Ooh. remember, remember all the details. You're not going to gimp it up, right? Absolutely not. No. Could be practicing that all week, just telling people that at my, my actual you know, 9 to 5 job. Like, here are your keys. Enjoy your stay. Also on AdamandEve.com. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, good night.
This is the sound of poisons The sickness no one knows No one is crying for us this time As shapes are blurring under miracles of snow Weave a circle around him three times You have to plan your moves at these times Our hearts are breaking One more song to go These eyes are blind This is a pure thing These hands I kiss Tragic as anything These eyes are blind This is a pure thing Flash and hiss Beyond my measuring Only the animal cruises The main event remains Shameful and naked Out there in the Cold outdoors, we have to learn these things again. Bathing this incandescent glow will lead to something I don't know. There is no doubt upon us when the greasy men come back again. These eyes are blind, this is a pure thing. These hands I kiss, tragic as anything. These eyes are blind This is a pure thing A splash of his Beyond my measuring These fading flowers Precious as memory A veil of cloud Collector's energy We had some good machines But they don't work no more I loved you once Don't love you anymore These eyes are blind This is a pure thing These hands I kiss Tragic as anything These eyes are blind This is a pure thing A splash and hiss Beyond my measuring These fading flowers Precious as memory A veil of cloud Collector's energy We had some good machines But they don't work no more I loved you once, don't love you anymore.